Thank you, choir and praise band. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to please open it to Psalm 135. Today we are concluding the series on worship. Um, so we're going to be focusing on verses 15 through 18 with special attention to verse 18. There is already always reason to rejoice. Um, the Lord has granted many, many things in our lives. And certainly as I give you updates each week on Emma, today just a very special one. Uh, today she is celebrating her 22nd birthday. So we are very excited about that. She's continued to do well, still seeing movement in her legs on command. So we're very, very thankful. As I said, we're finishing this series on worship. Today I want us to think about the object of our worship and how that impacts us. We're going to find many similarities in the passage that I read with what Nathan read earlier. Because one of the themes in the scripture is that you and I will become like that which we worship. The object of our worship shapes us. And that's why the issue of worship is central to life. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Would you bow with me in prayer right now? Gracious Lord, we praise you this morning. We have been reminded this morning through song that you are our Savior. That by the blood that Jesus shed upon the cross and His resurrection, we have been redeemed. Father, we have been reminded that as Christians, we have reason to sing. And one of those reasons, Father, is that You are the great shepherd who leads us. You are the great and mighty God. Yet You condescend to us, Father. So we ask You this morning, Lord, to speak to us. To give us ears to hear You. Grant, Father, that we would be transformed, changed to become more like you. And help us take a hard look this morning. A hard look at who or what we are really worshiping. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. One of the challenges that I have in my life is this. I don't ever want to stop growing. I want to continue becoming. And in fact, we all are whether we want, want to be or not. I want to be becoming in a positive way. I read stories like the story of Anna Marie Robertson Moses. And she reminds me to become something even more no matter what age I am in life. She was born in 1860, New York. Married, her and her husband moved to Virginia where they began farming, making a difficult living. In fact, she often made homemade potato chips and churned butter to sell just to make a living. As time went by, her husband passed away. 
Her son took over the farm and she began to continue a hobby that she had done for a long time, embroidering. But with what happens with a lot of people, she had a visit from Arthur. That's right, arthritis. She couldn't embroider anymore. So at the age of 76, her sister suggested to her, Anna, why don't you take up painting? It's something you can do with your hands. It's not as intense as embroidering. So Anna thought, yeah, I'll give that a try. And so she started painting, but her, her right hand still bothered her, so she learned how to paint with her left hand. And at the age of 78, she began to find out that people were really interested in her paintings. In fact, they began selling for anywhere between eight to $10,000. In fact, um, in 2006, one of Grandma Moses' paintings sold for $1.6 million dollars. Grandma Moses started painting when she was 76. Keep becoming. We're all continuing to become. The question is, what are we becoming? She became an artist later in life. Now, some of us would look at that cynically and say, well, I, I don't know about her, I'm just becoming older. Or I'm becoming more set in my ways. But the reality is, we're all changing. Are we becoming better? Or are we becoming bitter? Are we becoming more complete in the presence of God? Or are we becoming something contrary to who God is? Psychologists have fought for a long time over what determines what a person becomes. Some would say it's, it's nature. In other words, you become genetically whatever you're predisposed to become. Others would say it's nurture. Your environment determines what you become. But I think the scripture teaches something else. The scripture teaches we become like that which we worship. We will begin to take on the characteristics of that which is most valuable to us. So this morning as we finish this series on worship, I really want us to take a look at the question of what are we becoming? Our lives will reveal that which we worship. It's inevitable. Now remember, what we worship is that which we hold as of supreme value. That which is at the center of our lives. That which we esteem more than anything else is that which we devote our time, our energies, and everything to. And the scripture teaches us that God is to be the supreme focus of our devotion and our energies. But idolatry occurs when something else takes the place of God. When something becomes the center of our lives and it's not God, that's an idol. When something becomes more valuable to us than God Himself, that thing becomes an idol. When something other than God determines our values and our actions, that is idolatry. Now because we are worshiping beings, because we worship because that is how we are made, idolatry is always a temptation. It's something we must be on guard about continually because without realizing it, we can fall into the practice of worshiping an idol. And our lives will reflect that. I draw your attention to verse 18. Those who make idols become like them. So do all who trust in them. 
What are we becoming? We need to recognize that idolatry is not just something relegated to the Old and the New Testaments. And we need to keep in mind some truths about idols. Because this is not something on the periphery and it's not something innocuous. It's something that determines our lives. You need to remember this about idols. An idol will promise you life, but will never be able to deliver it. Notice the description of the idols in verses 15 through 17. They're the work of human hands. They're made of silver and gold. They are shaped with mouths. They are shaped with eyes. They are shaped with ears. So everything about them appears to be lifelike. It's as if the idols could speak, could act, could be animate objects. But notice that the psalmist is quick to point out they aren't. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have mouths, but they don't speak or breathe. They look like they're living, but they aren't. An idol promises and gives all the appearances of life, but is lifeless. You see, that is the false promise of anything we worship other than God. It promises to give you life, to give you abundant life, to give you everything you've ever desired. But it doesn't. Now we recognize today, most of the time our idols are not little uh, things crafted to look like humanity that we place upon our bookcase or upon our mantle or upon top of our TVs. But we are prone to idolatry nonetheless. We begin to worship and value things that we believe will give us life. The good life. But they don't. And it's interesting to me when we hear testimony of people that we look at and think they have it all. Only to hear them say, I don't. One such testimony comes from a man recognized even today, years after his death, as one of the leading CEOs in American industry. A man by the name of Lee Iacocca. When Lee was a young man, he worked at the Ford Motor Company, and he was instrumental in developing that classic American car, the Ford Mustang. Years later, he became the chairman, the CEO of the Chrysler Corporation. And he came to Chrysler at a time when that company was bankrupt, about to completely go under. And his leadership brought about a change. It resuscitated the Chrysler Corporation. He was a man that had it all. But look at the words he wrote in his autobiography. He says, here I am in the twilight years of my life. Still wondering what it's all about. I can tell you this. Fame and fortune is for the birds. He identifies two idols that often permeate our culture. Fame and fortune. If I can have my 15 minutes of fame, or if I can make a fortune, then I will have life. But his testimony echoes many who have reached the pinnacle of success, only to say, it has left me feeling empty. Why? Because idols promise true life, but never deliver. In fact, here's the second thing to remember about idols. Idols give the illusion of control, but they will always lead to our death. See, the premise of idolatry is this. It gives us a sense of control because what we do for the idol results automatically in benefit for us. It's like idols are like a vending machine. If I do this, the idol gives me this. If I act in this way, then the idol rewards me. 
If the idol demands sacrifice, I give it, and I'm supposed to get what I want. So if my idol demands of me 60 to 70 hours of work per week, and I give it, I should get what I want, which is satisfaction. If my idol demands that I spend four to six hours a day on social media, and I give it, I should get the popularity that I long for. I'm in control because I manipulate my idol. But it never works out that way. In fact, it becomes the idol that is controlling us, no matter what it is. Eventually, our idols promise us control, but they end up controlling us. If I can give you an example from another famous CEO, a man by the name of Steve Jobs. His biographer, Walter Isaacson, points out how he began to focus, even at an early age, on an idol. It's not the idol that you think it would be. We think of Steve Jobs, the, the CEO of Apple. Surely it was technology, but it wasn't. Jobs' idol was food, but not in the way that we think. You see, we think of food as an idol, as comfort food. I mean, if you're upset and you want comfort, you go, you get Oreos and a gallon of milk, and life is better. But that's not the way Steve Jobs looked at it. He saw food as a way to control his life. So he would experiment, even as a teenager, with these diets. Like for two years, he would eat only, or two weeks, he would eat only apples. He would experiment with various diets to give a sense of control over, over his health and everything. When he was diagnosed in 2003 with islet cancer in his pancreas, the doctors told him it's a rare form of cancer, but the good news is this, it's very, very curable with surgery. Very curable. Steve Jobs said, and I quote, I really didn't want them to open up my body, so I tried to see if a few other things would work. So, according to his biographer, Jobs turned to his idol. He turned to a strict vegan diet with large quantities of fresh carrots, fresh juices, believing that his idol would heal him. It was only when he went back a year later to discover the cancer had grown. His idol promised him life. But it didn't deliver. See, the idols convince us we're in control. But our idols will always control us because they enslave us. Idols promise life, they don't deliver. Idols promise you that you are in control, but you're not. Because an idol will always enslave you. Jesus said we can't serve two masters. We'll either serve God or money. He was making the broader point, we're going to be slaves to someone. Someone is going to control our thinking. Who will it be? Idols will focus upon our desires and through those desires begin to control us. They will promise us to give us what our hearts long for. And because we bind to that lie, they begin enslaving us. Paul points to this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. But their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. In other words, their idols, their belly, their desires driving them. They glory in their shame with minds set on earth. See, idolatry feeds our desires. 
then enslaves us based on those desires. Tim Keller in his book Reason for God points out how this works and how that enslavement destroys us. He points out some of the common idols that we have. For example, he says, if you center your life on your identity, on your spouse or your partner, in other words, if your idol is your husband or your wife, you will become emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling, and the other person's problems will overwhelm you. He says, if you center your life and your identity on your family and your children, and you try to live your life through your children, they will resent you and have no self of their own. And at worst, you may even abuse them if they displease you. He points out another idol today, work and career. If your life and identity are your work and your career, you will become a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. And at worst, you will lose family and friends. And if your career goes poorly, what happens? You become depressed. Why? Your idol has failed you. If your idol consists of money and possessions, you'll be eaten up with worry and jealousy about money. You'll even be led to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will blow up your life. He says, if your idol is pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You'll be chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If your idol consists of relationships and approval, you'll constantly be hurt by the criticism of others and always losing friends. And even if your idol is religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your standards, your life will be eaten away by guilt. Idolatry always enslaves us. So the question is then, what are we becoming? We can look at that on a large scale at the culture around us. When we take a look at the society in which we live, it becomes very easy to pick out the idols that drive us, that control us. When we see an increase in lewd behavior, sexual immorality, and vulgarity, we understand that some of our idols feed to our basest desires and tell us that if we will simply follow what we want, satisfaction will come. But I ask you, church, what is it leaving in our wake but destroyed lives that are hurting and broken? We look around and we see an increase in anger, violence. How prone we are to jump to violence as the first, as the first response to any situation. We are revealed that we worship power and self. And our idols control us so that we believe the first response is to become anger and to force our will. But understand that a culture is made up of people. And we can't just look at the culture as a block of just some faceless individuals. We are a part of the culture around us. So we need to ask ourselves, what are we becoming? What does your lifestyle reveal about your worship? What does your character reveal about what is of the most and supreme value to who you are? 
I'm asking you this morning to take a hard look at your heart. And that's hard because when you start talking about worship, you're dealing with what the heart holds most dear. And that's why sometimes we shy these questions. But if we are to walk with God, we cannot detour around them. How do we assess what our idols are? Let's look at what we fear. If our greatest fear is uncertainty, we will be prone to the idol of control. If our greatest fear is not being certain of everything, we will find the idol of control will draw us so that we micromanage everything. If we have an undue focus on physical appearance, and our greatest fear is not to be found attractive, or to be considered sexy. It could be that approval has become our idol. And the thing we live for most is for the approval of others. If our greatest fear is humiliation or embarrassment, we'll be prone to the idol of power. To always be the one on top. What do your fears tell you about what you worship? Do they drive you to God or drive you away? Now here's the thing. Once an idol is identified, it must be destroyed. Throughout the Old Testament, you see this pattern. When revival is to come to Israel, they must destroy their idols. You cannot take half steps with idolatry. It doesn't work that way. Idols cannot be domesticated. That's one of the lies they tell us. Just cut back. Don't be, just, don't, don't be so intense. But half steps lead to full steps away from God. Such a tragic illustration of this is found in an event that occurred on October 31st of 2019 in Oxford, Indiana. The police received a call from the house of the county sheriff, Don Munson. See, a woman's body had been discovered at his house, dead. The cause of death was listed as asphyxiation due to strangulation. She'd been choked to death. And the cause of the asphyxiation was clear. She'd been choked to death by a ball python. You see, the sheriff had added a room onto his house with 140 snakes that he kept as pets. And this one particular snake is one that this woman would carry around her neck frequently. It became a pet. It's safe. We know him. We've even named him. But at some point, the snake did what a snake does. And it killed him. An idol will always do what an idol does. That's why there's no half measures. So what do we do? First we have to recognize the power of the idol can only be broken by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not self-help, not self-actualization, not just willpower, but a confession that says, Lord, I recognize this idol. I need your power 
daily to be free from it, hourly to be free from it, but minute by minute to be free from it because idols cling tenaciously to our hearts and must be pulled away and we must continually be on guard. So we say, Lord, I need your power, the Holy Spirit power to be free and to know what life is. And that involves repentance. There is a freedom in naming and then engaging in transformation of the mind. Part of confession is saying, this is my struggle. This is my idol. A lot of times we don't experience freedom because we want to keep it quiet. And guess what? Idols thrive in secrecy. That's why a small group of believers, a corporate gathering, or just getting with one or two others and saying, pray for me, help me, encourage me, exhort me, hold me accountable, help me to walk with God is crucial. That's why Satan wants to individualize every believer. He does not want you to connect in a deep spiritual way with any other Christian. Why? Because he knows that when we start getting serious about idols and sin, he is even more defeated than he already is. We need each other. So we repent by confessing it to the Lord and saying, brothers and sisters, help me. And then we begin by engaging in actions to break the hold of the idol. Here's what I mean. If you recognize that your heart is held captive to possessions and money, start being generous. If giving up of money is hard, find ways to be generous with it. Because when you say, Lord, I am not going to be held captive to the idol of greed anymore, and you start practicing generosity, you will find life and freedom recognizing that God has given you the resources you have for His glory. Your idol is sex. You must break the relationship. Whatever is funneling that into your life, it needs to be cut off. That means taking drastic steps at times. If it's Facebook that's leading to sin, stopping it. It's the internet taking steps to counter that. Bringing sin to light. You look at our culture. And that is one idol that is wreaking havoc in lives, families today that is just heart-rending to see and to hear. Your idol is self. In other words, if you put yourself at the center of all things, you want to break that idol as you repent it? Find ways to serve. Lord, help me to break the idol of self. I repent of it. I'm a selfish person. And to say, Lord, help me that I may serve others. The hold of that idol will be lessened. And I want you to understand, when you start becoming serious about breaking the hold of idols, your flesh is going to fight against it because we are creatures of habit. But I believe with all of my heart there is nothing nothing that the Spirit of God cannot overcome. And I want us to taste freedom and to live in the light of the gospel. So I ask you to consider this question. What are you becoming? What does your character and your lifestyle tell about who or what you are worshiping? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. As we go into a time of invitation, Nathan and I will be at the front to pray with you if God's moving on your heart. 
And I want you to know, and I say this every Sunday, these kneeling benches are open. If you and some people want to come and pray, have the freedom to do that. If you need to speak with someone, Nathan and I are here at the front. We will pray with you, and, and we may even say, hey, we're pray now, but let's, let's figure out a time that we can sit down and talk more about this. Sometimes we just need to get to the point of being sick and tired of our idols. Sick and tired of the control that they have over us. And if you're at that point this morning, I want you to hear the words of Jesus when he said, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Father, help us. Father, we confess that sometimes idolatry is so deceptive. We're engaged in it without even...